0: Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So I hope you guys are ready for something like a half an hour's worth of quality commentary and analysis on all things precious metals and market related, economy related, etc. There's going to be a handful of different topics I get to today. This is sort of my Friday wrap up video, which maybe some of my longtime viewers and listeners over in the podcast world are familiar with. So I'm kind of going to be all over the place on all these different topics, but I hope I bring you guys some some really uh, quality, uh, valuable information here. And I want to start off with precious metals, as the title of this video suggests. Now, as you can see, uh, ending the week here, this is a one-month chart, and, and I'm recording this after uh, market close on, on Friday. As you can see here, um, actually a pretty strong close to the week just today. In fact, if I go to a one-day chart here for silver and gold, uh, very strong finish to the week. Uh, ending the week, you know, more or less... Even uh, now, uh, I'll get more to to this drop and, and this you know recent recovery. But as a whole, we saw silver really outperform gold today, uh, closing just shy of of, of fifteen dollars, you know about fourteen ninety one an ounce. Gold just shy of twelve eighty, and those are big numbers. Uh, it's encouraging to see them rally and, and then not drop through maybe some of these uh, support levels, like in the case of gold, you know, around 1267. It bounced off of that same level, right around that same level that it hit back uh, in the in, you know, second half of April. So that's encouraging, um, but there's a little bit more to this story. Of course, what is maybe one of the biggest driver uh, of, of the price of silver and gold in dollar terms? It's the dollar, it's the dollar index. And so if we we switch over here to the dollar index real quickly, um, this is really interesting actually. So what you see here is that going back to right around that same time span when um, gold had had kind of tested that low, uh, April 23rd, uh, you see the dollar really take off. And and interestingly actually, if I added gold to this chart, you would notice that uh, gold actually moved up a fair amount with the dollar as it rallied. But focusing on the dollar for a very long time, if we, we I apologize for all the pop-ups, if we back this this uh, chart up a bit, for a long time, there was a very strong resistance around the 97.5 level. And and ultimately, in April, that was broken through uh, pretty uh, strongly, uh, north of 98, actually. Now, what we're seeing today at the close for the markets is the dollar right back around that 97.5 mark. Now yesterday, uh, actually the day before, after I think uh, trading hours, it actually had dropped below that, but but uh, quickly moved back above 95. Maybe this was around the Fed minutes, uh, or when the Fed in, uh, made their announcement, um, back above the 97.5 level. Um, but again, as we close the week, right around that 97.5 level. So uh, how do I interpret that? you know i think for those that are expecting the dollar to go up uh this is this is somewhat bullish, I would say, for the dollar, that it didn't break through that at the end of the week. Now, maybe there, you could argue there's some technical damage done earlier in the week, but really, you know, this is something that I guess you can stay tuned for next week. You know, as markets open up Sunday and then Monday, you know, what will the dollar index do? Will it fall through that support level? What used to be resistance level? Will it, and now as a support level, will it fall through at 97.5? And if that's the case, you know, then I think we could see a retest for gold, uh, uh you know, up at 1300 and, and beyond and, and, Silver up above that, you know, that could really throw a wrench in this whole idea that the dollar had really broken some key resistance and that it was kind of off to the races. Maybe that's not the case. Now, I want to relate this to maybe one of the biggest news items this week, and that was the Fed meeting. Now it, the Fed didn't really do a whole lot in their meeting uh, in terms of of rate cuts or, or tweaking their their balance sheet runoff. Um, the only thing that did change is is their uh, what they call their interest um, on excess reserves rate. And they cut it by by, by five bips, so five point zero five percent. I'll get to that here in a second. Uh, but but my big takeaway, I guess, from that Fed meeting was that they were not dovish enough. I don't want to go so far as to say they were hawkish because over the long term, they definitely were not. But they were not dovish enough, not from my perspective necessarily, but from the market's perspective. I think we found it out to some extent this week that the markets didn't necessarily like everything that Jerome Powell had to say. But I think in coming weeks, um, we're going to see a real concern that maybe the Fed is too tight. Maybe they need to end their quantitative tightening sooner maybe they need to cut rates and not just their uh, interest on, uh, on excess reserves rate and and maybe the fed needs to loosen their monetary policy not necessarily just for inflation reasons right they might state that as a reason not just for economic reasons that's certainly a valid reason as well um, you know from from those individuals perspective but more so from a Liquidity perspective. In fact, with this article here from, from Zero Hedge, the Fed has lost control of rates as technical tweak fails. So basically, what they're talking about is, is on this interest on excess reserves rate. Now, generally speaking, as you can see here, this this green line, this is from Zero Hedge, they do a pretty good job of reporting on this, uh, had been maintained at that level and then, of course, was cut in the meeting, or after the meeting. This red rate, or this red line here is a US Fed funds rate which has been, since sometime in March, above the interest on excess reserves rate, which is abnormal. Now, the Fed funds rate is is maintained within a range of, of 2.25 to 2.5% currently. Usually, they don't like to let it get above that 2.4%, or certainly above the interest on excess reserves rate. As of late, it has been above that. In fact, this is a better uh, idea of this, that for the longest time it was below, kind of stayed steady with it, and. For about a month plus now, it's actually been above that. And their interest rate cut, their their cut on the I, uh, interest on excess reserves rate, it it lowered the Fed funds rate, the effective rate, but it's still well above, as you can see in this chart right here. As this title suggests, they may be losing control of these rates. Not to say that it's all going to spiral out of control, but that they might need to resort to measures that would increase liquidity in the system. Now, what does all this mean? You know, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this as well. But again, Zero Hedge sums this up. And actually, I should say Barclay's uh, analyst, Joseph Abate, 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 whatever, recently ominously concluded, this is, this is kind of key here, the large move also suggests that the banking sector is nearing the steeply Sloping part of the reserve demand curve, which means that, I guess in layman terms, bank reserves are now, or somewhat layman terms, are now significantly closer to what individual banks consider their least comfortable levels of reserves, level of reserves, and thus banks are more willing to pay higher rates to retain these balances. Additionally, in other words, some $1.5 trillion in excess liquidity created by the Fed is no longer enough for banks which are starting to scramble to obtain additional liquidity which, needless to say, is very troubling for a banking system which is supposedly fortress and much more stable than it was before the financial crisis. If anything, this means that even a modest liquidity-draining crisis at any point in the future could have vastly more dire consequences than even the pessimists believe. Now, how could they fix this? They give a couple examples. Uh, They could uh, end the balance sheet runoff this summer because, again, the balance sheet runoff, quantitative tightening, saps liquidity out of the system, just like QE added liquidity to the system. Now actually as reported by uh, Wolf Richter and and many others I'm sure the uh, Fed actually has begun to unwind their unwind of the balance sheet or, or, or slow it down. Now, it's not ultimately going to end until September, but April was the last month that they were basically going to max it out or, you know, have a cap on it of, of $50 billion between, uh, mortgage-backed securities and U.S. Treasury bonds. Beginning in May, that's going to be less and less each month until ultimately September. And then what they'll be doing is they will be um, reinvesting mortgage-backed securities into treasury bonds, which some people have called, I think they call it like mini QE because it has some similar um, effects as that. But they're still tightening. And they're saying, well, maybe they got to start it, end it sooner. They say they could create a standing uh, uh, repo facility, something which has been ruined for months, or conduct standard open market operations, injecting even more liquidity into the system quantitative easing, or, or you know, what, what can the Fed do to increase liquidity in the system? And, and again, going back to what I was talking about here with, with the Fed meeting and kind of my thoughts on it is maybe some, some real dovishness from the Fed in the form of uh, uh, new stimulus, new liquidity to the system, new easing policies could be done not necessarily just for inflation or economic reasons, but for liquidity reasons. This goes back to my video earlier this week talking about how the financial system, how this is uh, supposedly such a strong financial system, and yet, as you can see here, banks are worried. There's there's a reason. I don't think we should ignore that this IOER rate is above the Fed, or the Fed funds rate is above the IOER rate. So moving on, a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, what? Well, Yeah, I I, you know, I'm not going to beat a dead horse, I guess, regarding the dollar and and gold. You know, basically, if this uh, falls, continues to fall going into next week, that's, I think, very bullish. And maybe this big breakout that everyone's been talking about in the gold is not necessarily there. I think if I can build on this and, I guess, beat this dead horse... uh, what I'm saying here is that for a long time now people have been saying that once the dollar breaks this uh, resistance level, that's going much, much higher to 100, to, to 103, 104, whatever. And I get that, but what if kind of the the unaccounted for variable here is what if the dollar gets too high, it puts a pressure on the financial system, it puts a pressure on liquidity, it puts a pressure on emerging markets, etc. and... The Fed is forced to conduct easing policy, which will then bring the dollar down, as maybe that is what's being reflected right here. And and again, as also mentioned by Zero Hedge down below uh that, that chart, this is the market implied twenty nineteen Fed rate change. Basically, as of right now, people are still expecting a rate cut in twenty nineteen. Right now it's it's just north of of you know twenty five basis points. So one cut basically, they're still expecting some point in twenty nineteen. And maybe that's being reflected in the dollar index and its recent drop. Maybe people are realizing that the dollar only can get so high. The Fed is, if they allow it to move up to, let's say, 100 or above that, that's going to be conducive for instability in the financial system, emerging markets, et cetera. SAP liquidity out of the system. So moving on, another thing I wanted to talk about is is the the corporate bond markets as well as the stock market as a whole. Now, what you see here in black is the uh, ticker ETF HYG. Now, this is made by iShares, and there's actually another one out there that I assume will actually look exactly the same, and it gives you an idea of exactly what HYG is. uh, 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 High-yield corporate debt, also known as junk debt, J-N-K, or junk bonds. Um, Now, I want to show you this relative to the stock market. As you can see, uh, they they move, for the most part, in tandem. These junk bonds and, and the stock market. And there's times in which one's going to be above the other, and there's spreads and whatnot. Uh, but but the reason I wanted to show you guys this is is you know an interesting point and i forget exactly who it was that brought this up it was uh listening to macro voices one of my favorite podcasts which i'm sure i hope some of you guys have been picking up on and maybe listening to more often but but one of the guests on there was talking about hey you know what if the fed and their constant apparent targeting of the stock market what what i mean by that is the fed using their policy in response to the stock market. The stock market crashes in late 2018. Oh, surprise, surprise, the Fed pivots, right? Stock market's rallying. Oh, maybe we can get some rate hikes in, right? Uh, they, they want to keep the market propped up. What if it's not necessarily just about the S&P or just about the Dow, but also about corporate debt? Corporate debt is huge right now. And, and you know, maybe you've heard some other analysts talk about this as well. The, the real threat in the corporate debt market is uh, what we would call high-yield debt or what will soon be high-yield debt or junk bonds. So basically what you have right now is you have the junk bonds, you have the high-yield, which is, you know, this is kind of determined by where they fall or where they're. rated by uh, rating agencies like, like Moody's or, or Standard & Poor's. Well, what we have right now is we have a massive pile of corporate debt that is just on the verge of being put into that junk bond category, that high-yield category. It's not there yet, but given troubles in the financial system, a drop in the stock price, falling earnings, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, it's it's almost a given that a fair amount of that on the brink of high-yield bonds are going to be downgraded to high-yield bonds or junk bonds. And so why is this important? Well, that's important because a lot of, of asset managers or ETFs or what have you, they have certain rules that decide... What they contain within their portfolio or within the portfolio of, let's say, an ETF, like, like this one that we're talking about here, JNK. And, and what the situation that we're going to have in, in the future in this next downturn is a huge amount of debt being reclassified from, from on the brink of, of junk bond status to junk bond status. A huge influx into this market. And that's going to cause a serious amount of, of, uh, problems because of this huge influx in supply potentially leading to, to two problems. First of all, you're going to have asset managers which or, or or various owners of this debt that used to be just not quite junk bond status sell it as it moves into junk bond status because their rules, their mandates dictate that they can't own it anymore or that they have to cut their exposure to it significantly, which leads to a further drop in the prices and a rise in the yield. Further putting pressure on these uh, corporate markets. Additionally, you also have these types of markets or these types of ETFs that currently invest in this high yield debt or this junk bonds. And now there's going to be huge influx in supply, which also could add to to downward pressure on the price and upward pressure on the yield. Okay, and 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 you know the end story here is that what's ultimately I think going to happen is that a lot of these corporations their source of funding is going to dry up. They're not going to be able to get funding through the bond market, except at very high rates. Uh, and I think there's a reason why these rates will be rising so much as well. It's not just the market dynamics that I'm talking about there, but also the fact that there's a very real risk of default in a lot of these corporations. Right? In the last 10 years, we've seen the rise of what some people have called zombie corporations. And what that means is basically a corporation that, yes, functions. It, it it has some function, whatever their, their business is. But they're barely keeping their head above water. They're barely making enough in terms of profits in order to service their debt. Not pay it off, just service it in, in ways that they need to in order to not outright default. And ultimately, there has to be some sort of cleansing period for this. That at some point, these zombie corporations are gonna default. I mean, they're barely keeping their heads above water. There's not gonna be some um, crazy event that comes in and kind of saves the day. Eventually, this is gonna happen, and this goes back to what the Fed is doing. They, I think they don't want that to happen, where ultimately this cleansing occurs. This, this, goes, this goes into a broader conversation about the Fed and their central banks and their overall approach to, to uh, the business cycle, right? What they wanna do is they wanna replace the business cycle with a never-ending credit cycle. Right, Recessions are scary. Recessions can be painful. Recessions can be very unpopular. And so let's try and replace that with a system where recessions never happen. It's a very dangerous idea because what you end up with is stagnation and ultimately in the end a much, much deeper recession. Now, that might be due to inflation, might be due to uh, the, a central bank or government just losing control altogether. You know, it goes back to this this article that I was going to discuss uh, over the uh, earlier this week. Um, I, I forget exactly his name, but he was this venture capitalist that was on, on CNBC, and he's talking about a wide range of topics. And, and he had something interesting to say. You know, for the most part, I disagreed with the guy. He's, you know, really bullish on Tesla, which I'll get to here in a second, and some other topics, and it's just... No, and he's not my cup of tea. But he said one thing that was there's a sliver of truth to it. And Basically what he said is that, you know, because of how central banks have managed markets, the, the idea of high amounts of growth in the future is, is not likely. And he says basically that recessions cleanse a system that they can be a good thing. Now, he went on to say that because the Fed or because central banks are trying so hard to prevent a recession, therefore high yield or high growth won't happen in the future, but neither will recessions. I vehemently disagree with that. I think recession still will occur in the future. And when they do, you know, again, corporate bond markets are going to be a very scary place to be. I think we'll see quite a few defaults when that ultimately happens. So moving on, another market risk that I wanted to talk about, which I think is very apparent right now, is the volatility markets. Now what you're looking at right here is the VIX market over the last month. As a whole, it's been moving down. If we go back to the beginning of the year, you can see this kind of steady trend down. Now, maybe you could say maybe it's pivoted around the middle of April and slowly has been rising. But as a whole, volatility has been south of 20. Volatility you know, measures the volatility specifically in the S&P 500 index. And again, to put into perspective just how subdued volatility is right now, this is the volatility rise that we saw at the end of 2018, just a steady rise up. If we zoom out uh, a little bit further, you can see us back to October and we had the market highs and then just a steady move up. Not really steady, it's actually pretty jagged, but a big move up ultimately, ultimately to volatility north of 35. If we go even broader though, then you see the real risk in the VIX and the volatility index. This was a VIX blow up in the beginning of February and and I wouldn't be surprised if if we're running risk of being in a similar situation again because of some shock to the market. This was this was a shock to the market. Now it could have been a lot worse. And I'll get to that here in a second. But first of all, specifically about the volatility index, I want to show you this. This is from barchart.com, and this is the Commitment of Traders report. This is actually just updated very shortly before I I uh, went on the air here. I believe uh, maybe I can refresh it here. Uh, to, to get the latest data. But this is for, hopefully I bring it up again, um, the VIX. And it's basically, maybe you guys are familiar with this with metals, but this shows uh, their positioning. And what you see here is you, um, in the red you have what we'll call commercials, so banks for the most part. And the green here you have uh, large speculators. So that would be like hedge funds and 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 various other investors and speculators large speculators that are betting on on where volatility is going to be in the future and as you can see dating back to the beginning of the year they they're getting back into this this uh no-nonsense trade, I think that's what some people might call it, of being extremely short volatility. You saw this for, for much of, of 2017, actually, after the election. It's just this constant, huge amount of short positions on the volatility markets, the VIX markets. It's, again, we're seeing even a more profound buildup, similar to, actually, the buildup that we saw following the VIX blowup that I was talking about earlier, uh, over here in, in, in February. You see uh, large speculators actually go long volatility, and then move extremely short again. Well, once again, they're very short volatility. And again, I think if we have some sort of an unwind event, which could be related to liquidity concerns, economic concerns, the Fed, geopolitical—you know, there's a whole host of reasons that volatility could spike. Um, the the possibility of some sort of a short squeeze or rapid move up in volatility is very high. Now, why you might be asking? Do large speculators? go so short of volatility then? Well, it can be very profitable for a long period of time. I think there was a lot of people that made a lot of money through much of 2017 being short volatility. It was getting ridiculous there at some points, how long volatility was at incredibly low levels, right? It was was pretty much unheard of. But I would venture a guess that a lot of those people that bet against volatility or or shorted volatility, I guess, bet on volatility going lower for a long time there in 2017, very well may have lost all, if not even more, of that money that they made in February of 2018. Sorry, 2017. In 2018, they lost, I'm sure, much of that money with that blow up in the volatility index. Now, this is all interesting, volatility index and various other ETFs that that follow volatility. But what I'm really interested in is... I talked about this in my last video, explicit versus implicit volatility bets. Now, explicit volatility shorts or longs is basically betting on on the VIX index or various other uh, um, ETFs or exchange-traded products that follow volatility or are inversely related to volatility or the VIX index, I should say, and, and you're explicitly betting on it. Okay, and so if you're short volatility and it spikes up like it did in 2018 uh, at two different points, then you're going to lose money. But what I think is less obvious and much more dangerous is what some people might call implicit volatility bets or implicit shorts on volatility. And that basically is how large amounts of money, uh, money managers, hedge funds, uh, mutual funds, Pensions, on and on and on. Like the big players in these markets, not just some traders out there betting on volatility, but I mean, big traders, like big, huge, trillions of dollars in their control between all these, you know, categories I'm talking about, that are implicitly short volatility through a variety of means. Meaning that if volatility spikes, and it's sustained. They lose out. And, and this, this spike in volatility goes beyond just the VIX index, right? Now, if that happens, <clears throat> that's a much, much larger position, that short volatility, uh, implicit shorts versus the explicit shorts, and that's something to watch in the future. Now, I, what I want to do before I, I, I publish this video is I'll try and get you the name of the guy that actually talks about this. Again, I heard him on Macro Voices sometime back. I'm talking about this implicit versus explicit shorts, and I'll, I'll put it down in the comment section, so be on the lookout for that. The final topic I wanted to talk about today, coming up on about a half an hour here, got a couple minutes left, is Tesla. Now, I talked about them, I think, last week as well, following their earnings report. They were down quite a bit. Now, they're up here again in the last day or two, mostly on on the back of some news regarding uh, some, some new funding for the company. It, they're raising, I, I think it originally it's two, and I think now it's $2.1 billion that they're raising through um, some some debt, uh, I think it's bonds that can be convertible, some notes that can be convertible to uh, 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 stock, I believe. I don't know all the details of it. And then part of it is also that they're diluting their stock by selling some of their stock. It totals to 2.1 billion. The big news was that that Elon Musk is buying um, some, some millions of it. It was, I think, originally 10 million, but I think it was changed from that level, which is, in the whole scheme of things, not a whole lot for somebody like Elon Musk, who owns a huge amount of Tesla's stock. Now, it, the, the timing of it was really interesting. I don't wanna to get too much into that, but it was, right after an a SEC lawsuit uh, was ultimately kind of settled. But somebody had pointed out, I, I think there's a zero hedge or something, that that the addition to the uh, uh, the ultimate um, uh, amount that they were gonna be raising from from two to 2.1 billion counted for something like an extra 10 days of funding for the company. So as a whole, 2.1 billion sounds like a lot, but for a company like Tesla, that needs to, if they have any hope of surviving in the future, needs to finish their their gigafactory in China. They need to begin and ramp up production of the Model Y. They need to maintain production of the Model 3, the S, the X, the supercharger network, the the retail uh, uh, stores that they have. Um, It's it's very cash-intensive, where you look at the numbers and they have burnt through an enormous amount of cash in, in their existence and 2.1 billion is going to be enough to, to keep them afloat. Um, but I think there's a, still a certain amount of risk in the company, even in the short term of a decline in the stock price, basically, uh, as people realize that this, this stock is more and more built on, on this hope of this future concept of, of the model Y, the pickup truck, the, the roadster, the, the semi, which as of right now, all of those things are not to the market for the most part. And and in addition to, to the, the robo-tax idea that Elon Musk has been pumping as of late, once people realize that that is where this um, optimism is coming from and that, that that is many years out, if it ever arrives in the first place, some of those ideas, that this stock should be valued at a much, much lower price because the odds of them making it that far are pretty low because Tesla continues to iterate strong predictions for growth in uh, 2019, 2020, but a lot of the numbers are showing that quarter one, which is really an abysmal quarter for, for sales uh, among their three primary products, the, the S, the X, and, and the three, um, that that may continue in quarter two and beyond. And that there's not a whole lot that Tesla can do to try and and increase those sales, right? They're 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 doing all they can. They've they've um, brought all these types of different types of of, of uh, variants to the market in terms of all wheel drive, uh, mid range, long range, um, and of course they have their various luxury products and the S and the X. The only one they haven't really brought to the market fully is the the budget version, thirty five thousand plus version of of the Model Three, which I don't think they can make much if any money off of. Even if they, they really max out the volume, they're gonna to struggle to make any money off of that. Um beyond that, I mean the only real what some people would call levers they have to pull in terms of, of increasing demand is well selling or shipping some cars to places like like Australia or the UK. Um selling some cars and in China. But but beyond that, I mean those are very saturated market in, in China. Australia and the UK are not gonna be huge sources of demand. It's it's in one year's time, if I take back a year from now, Tesla was a supply-constrained business, meaning they had a ton of demand, not enough supply. A year later, it's the opposite problem, and and I think this company is, is really going to struggle going forward. And so, uh, It's something to keep an eye on. I'll probably offer more commentary on it in the future. I'm, I'm not going to go super into depth in, in this because this is not a Tesla uh, YouTube channel or anything, but again, something to keep an eye on. Uh, It it really, I think, is going to be representative of an era, like so many other companies I think will as well. Uh, Uber, uh, Lyft, maybe even bigger ones like like Netflix. Uh, I don't know if Netflix is actually bigger than Uber. Uber's not to the market yet. Um, But then there's some other ones as well. Uh, WeWork, um, there was a a new (laughs) IPO today of a fake meat company that apparently, or was that yesterday, that apparently did very well. Um, Some of these real bubble uh, companies uh, but but Tesla in particular, I think is going to be exposed as it's not just another one of those dot com bubbles like back in the early two thousands that was crazy overvalued. Um, but I think it's going to be exposed as, as more of an Enron story where not only was it overvalued, but there was a lot of shady stuff going on in the background. Um, and 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 I wouldn't be surprised if we see some some serious lawsuits, uh, jail time, uh, claims or or, or or stories of fraud. Uh, Counting fraud, et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, I think I'm going a little bit over my 30-minute limit here, which I kind of imposed on myself at the beginning. So as always, if you have ideas for future videos, topics you want me to discuss, let me know down below in the comment section. Additionally, I'll try and get you that guy's name talking about implicit and explicit volatility. Very interesting stuff. As always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video or listening to this podcast, and God bless.